0: Hey, Headbangers and metaheads, this is Doro Pash, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. so rock on. Focus on metal!
1: Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, along with... Richie. Welcome to episode 145 of Focus on Metal. And as I had promised last week, I said, no, there's no change in coast that, you know, Rich will be back next week, and here he is. Yeah, I'm back. <laughs> back for good. <laughs> like you never left. No. So you have a good break?
2: I had a great break. Cool, I cool. think everyone needs a break. Yeah, absolutely. If absolutely. F- if you're doing 50 shows a year. Yeah. I think you need a couple of weeks off, right? Yeah, even I even I left you alone up to a
1: point. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was still was still you know fairly busy, even though trying oh, yeah. not to do anything. It's yeah. like it never stops. So yeah, so you know I've been reading that the louder than hell book. I know you're getting it in. I'm getting it yeah. in. It,
2: it, it was one of these books. I think you look at the the size of it. It's The guts are 700 pages, and um, the people that they have in it, and you you think okay, this has to be pretty comprehensive because. Some of the other books that, that came out about the history of metal are like 250, 300 pages. And, you know, you, it's very hard to to get it all in there. I think a, a really, I think a book for, for metal that's 40, 50 years old now, more 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 or less, you need a, a sizable doorstop to get it all in there. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm enjoying it. It's, you know, I read a good chunk of it. It was funny, I mean, I got it in, like, weeks ago and it just kind of, it was sat there, was waiting in queue with a bunch of other things, but um, I I read a good chunk of it the weekend before last. And then uh, I got like maybe one, two more chapters left to go. And it is, I mean, it is really, it's a good book and I love the way they present it with all the different people um, for the most part, with, in each genre, they tend to stay with people that are in that genre. But occasionally there'll be some mixing, although th- things like the, the black metal, death metal, they seem to be very much inclusive of people involved in those scenes. But when you talk about like the thrash and some of the other ones, they have other people kind of come in and out of them as well. Um, but it is different because it's not just kind of, you know, the words like like the bang your head, like Ian's book, or it's. Pretty much, it's it's words, but it's the artist's words talking about it. Or you know, they got, got people like Monty Connor and other people from the labels and things like that. So it's it's I don't know I think I think it's pretty cool to to read their their stuff. You know, yeah, I prefer that that the artists
2: themselves have a, a sizable chunk of a book like that because when you get a. a someone who writes a book on the history of metal and it's 250, 300 pages, you're not going to really get anything new in it. Mm. Whereas when you interview the artists, you might get a chunk of of an interview out of an artist that you wouldn't know previously. Whereas... The other books would be kind of like, and then Pearl Jam came and Nirvana came and they killed all the metal before that. And and then this is what happened after that. And then MTV did this. And I'm like, yeah, but I know all that. Yeah. It's just you're writing it down in chronological order. Yeah. Whereas with the artists, I think, having their say in it. And if if it's put in the right place in it, with, with some commentary from the authors, of course, yeah. I think there should be a good
1: balance there. Plus, the size of the book, I'm thinking, yeah, it has to be pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it is. and I mean, it's got a lot of photos, but I mean, not like awesome killer photos but there's there's a good chunk of photos in there as well the only downside that i found was no power metal so yeah I'm like, I'm like where's my fire wind? where's my hammer fall you know where's uh you know primal fear like that whole category just isn't there and i'm shocked
2: yeah i wonder was that a is that is that a worldwide release i wonder and they just never bothered because that's more of a European thing. I, I don't know. Yeah, I um, was... It is odd because the, the genre itself is it's pretty big. Yeah. Um. Uh, that is unusual. Yeah. Maybe the maybe the, the authors feel that they covered it in other
1: sections of the book? Yeah, I in, don't know. In, it's. Yeah, I was just. That's the only thing I was bummed about was was that. Um, but, yeah, but otherwise, I, I
2: think it's a great book. Yeah, but didn't Sound Don have the same problem with the the, the evolution series that the the, the one was kind of tacked on at the end of it after he'd done all the rest of them
1: yeah for the most part that's kind of the way it feels when you watch it yeah
2: yeah so maybe maybe that was the same with this thing damn it (laughs) i
1: I, know i i agree that this if you're going to do
2: a book on 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 heavy metal music yeah you you have to cover all the genres because power metal music
1: is popular yeah i mean even i mean power metal and you know even like a lot of the symphonic metal i mean all any of that probably could have been lumped together as like one kind of a of a thing but you know the prog metal thing all that stuff is just it's just not yeah, there. Yeah, like, even do fifty
2: pages on it. It's seven hundred pages. Bang in fifty on it, and then someone yeah. no can say, "Oh, you didn't cover paramet." Yeah, but if they didn't cover it at all, that's that's a huge oversight yeah. on their part.
1: But it's but other other than that, it's, I I really like the book. Yeah, you know, Um, even you know, even though I'm really not a black metal death metal guy, except for Arch Enemy. Um, even you know, even those chapters, I I, I read them page you know page for page they really were interesting and you really got into what was going on in the scene and the mindset and all that and it was it was a really good read so um definitely i you know i recommend it i think it's a great book yeah i'm
2: looking forward to getting it yeah i really am yeah so hopefully in the next couple of days i'll i'll start that i'll probably look at it and go oh it's too long
1: (laughs) and then i'll go for something else but anyway awesome all right well why don't we uh hit up track of the week sure all right track of the week for episode 145 we actually haven't featured a band from nightmare records for for quite a quite a while and this week uh, definitely got a couple of good ones in and one of them we got in is the debut album from a symphonic metal band from austria called sirens cry pretty cool name for a band and actually their debut album is called scattered horizons and of course if you're listening on pure rock it came out today and so uh, just like I said, really cool debut album. Some people really don't like symphonic metal. There's other people that are really into it a lot. And this this is like kind of one of those middle ground things with there's uh, this crunchy elements to it, as well as the symphonic elements. And of course, the, the singer on the band, is she just does a fantastic, fantastic jo- uh, job with all the vocals as well. So just, I think, a pretty solid, solid debut album. They are going to be on tour and uh, doing some European tour dates with Master Plan and Mystic Prophecy, the the Master Plan Novum Initium Tour 2013. And that is uh that's happening in October. And of course, if you want to have all those dates, you can go up to focusonmetal.net and check out the tour page. And actually I have all the dates for that tour up on the tour page. And if you want to find anything else about this band, you know, hear the song and go, wow, that thing is really great. I want to hear more about the band and what they do and everything else, then definitely head up to sirenscry.com. You can also hit them up on Facebook at facebook.com slash band. And if you do that, you know, let them know that you heard them on uh, on Focus on Metal. So definitely, um, like I said, I think a pretty good album, pretty good release. And of course, there's some songs in there that are kind of coming in at around 10 minutes and stuff. Definitely don't want to be playing those on the show because we got lots of other stuff going on. But uh, there's some other ones that are that are short and, and pretty cool. And uh, like I said, the whole album sonically sounds really good. It's really punchy, and like I said, the vocals are just top notch, really good in your face, good stuff. And I do have some videos out as well. They have a, a YouTube channel, so you can go up to YouTube.com/slash/official Sirens Cry. So, like I said, it comes out today. If you Center on Pure Rock. Otherwise, just like I said, it came out in, uh, 917 in the US and 93 in the rest of the world. Just a pile of influences. You got Dream Theater in here. You got Metallica in here. Nightwish, Threshold. I don't know. A lot of Americans never heard of Threshold, but well, they're a pretty cool band out there. Some Symphony X in here. Just a mixing pot of stuff. So why don't I play you a bit of Sirens Cry off of the brand new debut release, Scattered Horizons. And. I'm going to play you track eight. It's called Serpents of War. And this thing kicks off with a great, great guitar riff. Really like it. And like I said, this is just an indication of the whole album. So hope you enjoy it. And then Richie and I will be right back after a little bit of Siren's Cry. there you go track of the week and i gotta say we've been getting some great great stuff in from the labels and uh, even this morning i was going over some stuff and, and reading uh reading listening to a couple of new releases and i think probably out of the seven things that i got sent over the last couple of days uh five of them are definitely like oh yeah track of the week definitely good stuff some really cool stuff coming out from nightmare some great stuff coming from baker team from scarlet records i mean just really great stuff and um kind of unusual time to get a bunch of great releases but uh, for whatever reason we've been lucky about it anyways this week we're uh it was kind of a a left field curveball that richie threw me and uh so what made you um hop on this one well i I decided to contact bo hill
2: because he produced a lot of the albums in the 80s that i i loved but especially with american Mm. hard rock music rat winger warrant um those kind of bands and I've always thought that producers in general, they they don't they get a lot of flack, and I don't think they're they're praised enough mm-hmm. um, after the fact. That when 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 you talk about all these all these bands and especially bands, from, even bands now, um, you, you, everybody talks about you, you like the likes of you know, and they talk about the Metallicas and the Megadets and all these guys. And like I know Reuben gets a bit of. A, a lot, a, lot of, a fair bit of promotion, but he not. he get, you know, he gets slagged a, a bit because people don't feel that he, you know he does as good a job as he could. But wh- when I look back on on the '80s producers that that produced all those albums, they're, they're mostly forgotten. Not forgotten is the wrong word. They're just not talked about as much as they used to be. Yeah. And a lot of them still produce music. Mm-hmm. I know the music model has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um. They're not as high profile now as they used to be, right? Um, they do albums a lot quicker and for a smaller fee, yes. Because yeah. they had six to eight months and
1: before. But well, like, not only that, but you got to figure that the you know, and and, and I think a little bit. Bo talks, not really in detail, but he he's he's kind of candid in a sense about it that it has changed and that you I mean a lot of times those big producers they could get in and then there's this budget they have this big budget to make it and then they could either. A lot of times they'd have the option, either they were going to get points on sales yeah. or a fee. And a lot of times they'd look at this band they were doing and, and a lot of them, you know, did very well for themselves by taking some band that really was unknown at the time, but said, I'll, I'll take points on this and, and did fantastic for themselves. So, um, but now, I mean, they look at it, I mean, just talking to someone and they just even talked about the fact that, you know, the way the industry is, it's the calling card Mm -hmm. now. It's not a driving revenue force. Yeah,
2: but I was, I always wondered what the band dynamic was for all these multi-platinum albums because you get the band's perspective on it in their books and in their interviews yeah. but then you get the producer's perspective on it yeah,
1: because, and we, uh, get a, uh, yeah we certainly get a, yeah, per, a perspective that's, from bo. that's
2: one of the reasons i got bo on because yeah. i'd heard him in an interview beforehand he's, he's pretty upfront and candid. Like, yeah he, he like these albums are 25 30 years old so there's no point in him now holding back on what he felt really happened sure and as well i, I i've we knew the albums back to front mm. like a lot of them are Classics of the genre, mm-hmm. so I've always wanted to, to get his input on it because, you know, to, 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 what you find is a lot of the band members they come on now and they're very quick to criticise the producer, yeah, and the producer doesn't have a comeback. Mm-hmm. And w- you know, I wanted to talk to Bo about you know t- t- some of the Rat albums he worked on, mm. and he was pretty upfront about oh yeah about, about the way the way the yeah, Rat guys very much so. in yeah. the studio. It was like, and it, it was great, like because like. The, the bottom line is they have their side, the band, but the producer has his side too, and I think it's good to get the producer's side out too yeah and i I was just curious to see how all these bands worked, yeah, because when when they came up in the mid to late eighties, they were the darlings of m t v everything was every everything was what what do you want? you want a car, you want a house, you want this, you want drugs, you want women, yeah, whereas Bo had to go in and say that's not good enough. He was the one guy that had to crack the whip and tell them no. Yeah. That you might get away with all this shit with all your hangers on, but, you know, you you want product to sell. It has to be up to a certain standard. Yeah. And he he got into that with some of the bands. Um, great discussions about, um, you know, the Janie Lane yeah. Um, that he kept in touch with Chaney right up and close to his death. Yeah, and he
1: said what? He talked to him four days before he died.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to him about Winger. That he basically said that Winger were his baby. Yeah. That he got into the management side with, with Winger. And he, he was forthcoming about why they folded, mm. you know, the things that the band did that killed themselves Yeah, um, in the early 90s. And he also went in a little bit to uh, his role in Interscope records and yep. in, in the, I wanted to get into that because he went from producer to manager to owner co-owner of, of a label yeah so yeah. he went up in in the food chain there and th- th- you know it was it was a great interview we, we we could have talked to him for a lot longer. He, um, you go on his website now and he, he he's, he's doing so much stuff. But yeah. he's one of these guys that he was one of the darlings of the era. You had Bo Hill and Mutt Lang, and you'd Martin Birch was Maiden and then Dieter Dirks was Scorpions. Mm-hmm. You know, these were all names. Yeah, like one, if you knew that Bo Hill produced it, you know, it was going to sound good, or Mutt Lang, you know, you what you were getting with yep. Mutt Lang. And, um, but he was one of the names where now there's Fucking two thousand names. The bands produce their own stuff, and but he still produces and. You know, he he said himself that he doesn't need to do it anymore. Financially, he's yeah, secure sure. from all the albums he did years yeah. ago.
1: And I mean, there are still, I mean, there's still some producers that are out there that are, you know, that are named producers. So, you know, if you go down to Florida and you work with Jason Sukoff, you know what you're going to yeah. get with Jason mm-hmm. Sukoff. So I was so happy, like, when Death Angel went down and worked with, with them, I was like, yeah. oh, this is going to sound so incredible with what they do with Sukoff. Um, you know, or, you know, on the power metal side, like, Frederick Nordstrom, so you know what you're going to get out of that. Mm-hmm. So there's still there's still some producers that are like that. It's just that that you know the money game isn't there. No. it's you know what I mean. That that's the that's like the bigger difference on it is is that you don't have that kind of millionaire producer thing anymore. Uh, but I mean, he, yeah, in the music industry you don't have millionaire anybody. Yeah, for, the, at least the, for anyone who's worth. The, a the damn. other thing
2: the other thing you get from the interview with Bo is. Um, he was the same age as a lot of the bands that he produced. Yeah. So there was no kind of father figure there that this guy came in with a huge reputation. Right. Because when he did all the early R.A.T. albums, he was, you know, he could have been anybody. He was like, yeah. He was kind of said, oh, do you want to produce R.A.T.? And he went in and the R.A.T. guys are like, who, who are you? You know, and he cra- And he, right. the band sold millions and millions of albums. So he obviously had the mightiest touch there with, with the band. Yeah. He was able to to see that. We have something here, but I just need to mold it in, in a certain way. And this is the way we're going to go. And, you know, I'll, these songs are going to sound this way and you're going to sell millions of albums. So right. he, he crafted all the, all those albums. I think a, a lot of the producers now, I think they just go in and they don't, they, they don't get involved in, in, in the songwriting as much as they used to. It's the sound of the album now more than anything else.
1: Uh, for some of them anyways, yeah, there's definitely some that are still out there that really do get involved in kind of the nuts and bolts and how things should, should flow and parts and things like that. There's still, there's still a lot of them out there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise a lot of times it is kind of this producer slash engineer role. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think it was a cool interview. I was uh, kind of, like I said, it was like a left field thing. You were like, Oh, we're talking to Bo Hill, which to me, I mean, I love talking to people that were behind the scenes and definitely, you know, a a named guy like him. And it was funny because some, um, some of the other people um, that, that do shows were, you know, when I said we were talking to Bo, that uh, they were like, oh, you know, looking forward to, to hearing this, mm-hmm. you know, hear what he has to say. So, um, yeah, I think I think it was a good interview. So um, uh, the only thing was, though, like me
2: not being the non-techie, mm-hmm. we couldn't really get into the technical aspect of his production, um, which I know, you know, we were up for time. We had someone else scheduled afterwards. Yeah. And, uh, but he, he sounded like he could have talked for a long time. But um, you know, I I just wanted to fo- focus on on the bands that he did and his relationship with them rather than you know like the Pro Tools and all this kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: but, no, I think that that was cool. I think that you had a good a good uh, intention going into it. Yeah, and and you kept to that, so I I think that it's it's got a good narrative to it. Um, so yeah, definitely. And it's funny you bring up like Pro Tools, and and I do have to mention that um, you know, I put on the Twitter about um the fact that you know if you can to really try to catch that sound city movie that Dave Grohl. Yeah. I'd I'd like to see that. Uh, You really should watch it. I think it'll give you also kind of a, a different perspective on, on work in the studio and stuff with tape and all that. Uh, Definitely. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought he did a great job and in, you know, they joke about, you know, the, the technology coming in with the computer based stuff. And, and I used, I totally forgot until I watched this, that they used to call it slow tools. That's what we used (laughs) to call it. And it just brought back of like they were showing, I'm looking at the, the screen and they get it up on a Macintosh. And I think, on the, I think they were showing a picture of a Mac 2CI. I was doing it on a Mac 2CX and I'm looking going, oh my God, like I know that screen. I've, I lived in that screen. And they were talking about the whole idea of, you know, when you, you'd go in and you would do this render and you'd say, yeah, I want it. Like I can remember like fixing even like on my band's album. And there was like a bass screw up. And the only way I could really do it at that point, to fix it was to apply this flange effect to that base screw up. And it would, then I'd be able to blend that all in and just basically like this little, I mean, we're talking like three notes and saying, apply this flange to those three notes, render, and then walking away i have having something to eat and, you know, go back and, oh, still not done, you know, and, and it would, it would take ages and it would be done. And then you'd go in and you'd pray like, oh God, I hope this sounds right. And, yeah. and then it'd be like, oh no, it's still not right. I need to, I still need to tweak the flange. It'd be like undo, tweak. And then, I mean, it was hours and hours and, you know, and now I do all this stuff. And it's like instantaneous. I got four friggin' computer cores going on it, you know, but it just brought me back to like, oh my God, just, I mean, it was one thing working with tape and they were showing about cutting tape and all, and I remember doing all that and, and having to cut it and splice it and all that. And that was, you know, one whole thing, but I had forgotten about just how long it took to render stuff. So if, if you can catch it, definitely yeah. catch it. It's a great, See, it's that's, a great that's, film.
2: You're bringing up a point there. It was like, I was thinking about this recently when we, when the Doug Aldridge interview. Um, he said that the new record sounds great, but it sounds loud.
3: Mm-hmm. I,
2: I remember when I got into metal in, in the 80s that a, a lot of the, the, the albums sounded different. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you know, the first thing I'd say to my friend was, who produced it? And then they might say, oh, Mike Stone did it, or Bo did it, or Martin Birch did it, or Tom Allen did it. And they all had a different sound. Whereas now they all have, a, they, they sound very similar. They're all loud. Mm-hmm. There's no difference in them. Yeah, and I I think that's something that's definitely missing from from today's music. I yeah. de- definitely agree. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that they don't. They sound good. They just sound similar. Yeah, and there's no different. Like if you put on a Rat album, and then and then you put on like you know somewhere in time, and then you put on say Defenders of the Faith and and so they all sound they sound completely different.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, you got to figure right right up until, you know probably you'd probably have to say like the white snakes 87 album yeah is one of those first albums that had kind of everything pushed into the yellow very compressed very loud just very straightforward i never liked the production on that. you know and even then i mean that still came out on vinyl but but a lot of that dynamics was dictated by vinyl yeah you couldn't have that loud bass and drums on Mm -hmm. vinyl because it just wouldn't stay. it wouldn't track yeah but now you, you have that and you have systems that you know, your regular factory car system does a halfway job, decent job of of reproducing that sound too, where Mm -hmm. back then, you know, your average factory car had, you know, a single mono speaker on the dashboard. So it was, you know, so there's a lot of, of the technology of what you're playing and what you're playing it on that's kind of come up some ways too. So it's, it is different, and, and then you, I could go into the whole MP3 thing as well, but I won't. But it is, you know, yeah, I think it was interesting, and, and I think he had a great idea with Bo. I, like, I wish we could have talked to him longer too. I think it was going really good. Hopefully yeah. we can have him back on again. Yeah, I'd love to have him on yeah. again.
2: Get into all the later stuff that he's doing now. Because I think with a guy like that, that the fact that he he never stopped producing bands, the fact that since he started in the 80s that he's continuously produced, hmm. I think he'd have a great perspective on, on, on the growth in, in hmm. the production, on the production side for the last 30 years, where you, you see a lot of the 80s producers now, a lot of them, they're retired. Yeah. They've, they've they don't they don't produce anymore. Right. So first of all, you're not going to get him on the show. But I think the thing with Bo is that he he still does it. He loves doing it, and he doesn't have to do it. Right. And he's good at he's good at talking. He's a good interview. Yep. Yeah. You absolutely. I'd like I, I, you know if, if we get him back on again, we can definitely go t- towards the later yeah. end of his of his production career. Yeah. Because he he a lot of the bands when he started they were nobodies, a lot a lot of them, and he made them. Mm. made them big but he kept yeah. working with them whereas now I think he gets more of an enjoyment out of just working with bands that he he likes to work with it yeah. doesn't matter I don't care where what part of the world they're from he can he, you see that's the thing as well now geographically he can he doesn't have to travel right he can do it from his, from his own home studio yeah and he's saying himself like that you know, he, he mixed this album and then next week he's doing another one. And then the end of the week, he might be doing another one. Yeah. Like, years ago, that
1: was unheard. of. It was right. like, saying to your wife, I'll see you in eight months.
2: Yeah.
3: And that and was I'm,
1: that was interesting, too, because that's, you know, that's basically what he, you know, he, he said he was he's been doing this, you know, and you'll, you'll hear it in the interview. I mean, we basically he called us. He stopped mixing. Yeah. And called us and did yeah, the interview he, he, sent, he was going to He
2: sent me the email and he said, I'd love to come on the show. I'm mixing some album at the minute. I need a break. Yeah. Just call me whenever you want and here's the phone number. And I was like, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, we, we got him and we talked to him for just nearly an hour. I'd Almost say. an hour, yeah. And we, we could have talked to him for two hours. Yep. He just seemed that he was really into it. Very up, very upfront with all these answers. Great talker. Just really nice guy. Great interview. Um, you know, I've since been in contact with him and told him, like, thanks for coming on and everything. He said he had a great time, you know, that hopefully in in the future, if we want him on again. So, you know, I I think it's a great interview. I think it's a little bit left field, um, because like I'm sure everyone wants to hear, you know, they want to hear the musician, or or we've gone down the musician end a lot and we've got a couple of authors on, but I've always felt like, get the guy behind the desk on, yep, if we can, and because. they have all the stories they've worked with multiple bands which I think gives a different perspective because if you get a band member on he he doesn't really talk about any other bands he's more interested in promoting himself whereas with Bo he talked about eight or ten bands with us and um, you know they they don't get asked as much as they should in my opinion yeah it's very true you know just just ask the guy to come on and they're they're
1: thrilled to come on yeah and um,
2: you know it it was a good interview I really enjoyed it yeah Cool.
1: So what do you think? Well, let's roll it. Yeah. End the mystery. Mm-hmm. So we go. Then we roll it and get right into
4: the talk we had with Bo Hill. But anyway, you guys didn't call to talk about the weather. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh. Not at all. You know, we do a show about metal and music. Of course, you're a big part of music history, so we were you know, eager to be able to, to talk to you. And uh, so I uh, hear what you have to say about lots of things. So hopefully <sighs> you have a
4: little bit of time for us. I'm good. I Actually, I I have been power mixing. I've been finishing an album for this Swiss band that I worked with in Geneva. And uh, they held off giving me the final files until like a day before the thing has got to be delivered. (laughs) Yeah, that's power mixing. All right. (laughs) So I did, I did over the last four days, I've done 12 songs, 13 revisions and nine instrumentals.
2: Wow. (laughs) <laughs> and and so, you have time to talk to us and watch the news. <laughs> listen, I mean, just being able
4: to talk on the phone to another human being is a real treat for me. So. Oh, okay,
1: <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I I do some work with with bands myself, and never not as intense as what you're doing, and certainly not the the same level. But yeah, when you start mixing and stuff, after a while, you like you kind of walk away from it, and you are kind of like, where did life just go? And yeah, it's like you've just been been beaten over the head with a whoopee cushion.
4: Yeah.
2: And
1: and you kind of get the sense of what these people that like play video games and get locked into it for hours, that's like, that's mixing, you know? You just kind of wake up after a while being like, oh my God, like it's the next day and stuff. So yeah, Yeah. intense stuff.
4: Well, you got to, you got to force yourself to walk away from it or else, you know, you don't have any objectivity either. So it's not anybody any good. Yeah, it's
1: true. Your ears just, after a while, your ears just start losing it. Yeah. That's it. So, so, um, okay, carry on. obviously okay. you're, you know, you know, when you go back to think about this kind of that wave of, of big producers in the eighties, obviously your name always rises right up there along with folks like Bruce Fairburn and Bob rock. And as far as I remember, I think you kind of almost in a sense stumbled into producing. Is that pretty much the case?
4: No. no. Um, and just as a, as a side note, the last album that I did as an artist, Bruce Fairbairn produced, and Bob Rock was the engineer. No, was that for Shanghai? That was for Shanghai. Okay. Yeah. Um, No, I actually, I put myself through college um, as a recording engineer in a very small studio in Colorado. And um, and it was, and I would work during the day, you know, doing normal stuff, cutting jingles and high school choirs and church choirs and you know, polka bands and whatever came in. <laughs> and then at night I would record my band. And so I was able to experiment and make some of the worst sounding recordings on the planet earth, but it was of my own band. And so, and it helped me get better. And I played my demos for Keith Olson and that's how we got our deal. Mm-hmm. And so at that point I decided, okay, okay, when I get finished with the with the rock thing, I definitely want to want to produce forever. Yeah. So, but anyway, that was that was my my dream. But actually, you know, there is a uh, a certain distance between your dream and being able to turn it <laughs> into reality.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. I know um, when I got out of high school, and um, at this point in, in Lowell, they had the University of Lowell, and they had. Just like two years before that, it opened up their recording technology program, and I was definitely like, gung-ho, I was going to go into that program and all that. Yeah, my dream was, was shadowed. My father was like, well, if you're going to do that, you're not living here anymore. You're going to do something different than that. So it was kind of a case of, I didn't get to go that route, and and now here I am, you know, years later, doing what I was going to start out to do initially. So it's uh, Well, con- congratulations, <laughs> that you got there. <laughs> yeah eventually yeah the way the way long way around doing it but uh yeah it actually it worked out pretty good because the guy that that uh, actually started that rec tech program he ended up uh going to some other school and then it for a couple of years it really fell apart for a long time and they had had great gear too um mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember the, all the delta labs rack stuff you must remember all that sure. stuff and yeah. and richie DeFreitas is actually a uh, friend of mine and um grew up in the same town as me we actually played in a jazz band together for a while and and um richie had donated like all kinds of stuff to, so that studio had like every piece of Delta labs gear that richie ever did put out and even some stuff that he didn't actually put out commercially as well so it, it had you know that and other killer gear so it was it was a great studio just um unfortunately no one really behind it at the school anymore to really put it to good use for the program which is kind of a shame
4: it, yeah yeah, that 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 is a shame. Well, you were one up on me because when when I w- started out at the studio, I was I started out as the janitor, so I was cleaning the toilets. <laughs> there wasn't any sort of of uh, education. There was no uh, school, no yeah. formal school at all, other than just you know you had to. Work for slave labor for a certain period of time in the hopes that you might be able to to pick up enough knowledge and that, you know, one of the assistant engineers was going to fall and break his neck on the way to work and they had to call you in. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I think but, the I think the program here was I think actually one of the first rec tech programs actually in the com in the country. I think the guy who started it, he may have just gone down to to Boston to Berkeley. I'm not sure where he ended up, but yeah, yeah. it was at a time it was kind of a big deal you know, to have that. I'm
4: glad glad
1: they did it. Yeah. It's pretty cool because they were doing that rec tech and then some music business as well. So you kinda kinda got a a nice even program. So it was a good idea. Yeah. So obviously Richie's here and he's He's kind of foaming at the mouth. He wants to. He wants to talk eighty stuff. Yeah, He's like. He hates when I start talking technical stuff. No. So he wants to talk eighty stuff. I don't hate it. I just don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> so
2: I, I, I came down here tonight, Bo, and my wife said to me, well, "Who are you interviewing?" And I said, "I'm interviewing Bo Hill." And he sh- she said, who is he? And he said, well, he's one of the guys that you should blame for me getting into this music in the first place. Because you, you did a lot of the stuff that I grew up on. And, um, you know, the, the rat and winger warrant, you know, all that. And like, you can probably tell I'm from Ireland, so I'm not an American. You know, I, know, I wasn't raised in the U.S. or anything where it was huge over here. So yeah, doing, I, was, I was going to say your
4: Bostonian accent leaves no, nothing to
2: be desired. No, no. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up on um, on a lot of the, you know, most of the stuff you did in the 80s. Hey,
4: well, don't leave out Gary Moore.
2: Oh, 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 what a loss he was. Yeah. Fantastic. You did, Um, what was the album you did for him? Um, with Glenn Hughes on it, wasn't it? Did you do that yeah. one? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, run for cover, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you did that album. Yeah, that's right. I was looking through your um, discography today, and I was like, "I got that one. I have that one. I have that one. I have that one." It was like it was unbelievable. But you know, like the one question I would have is the whole genre itself was named hair metal. What do you think of that term? Like, do you think it's like a derogatory term to the to the to the, to the movement?
4: Yeah, well, it's it's a, it's very derogatory, but it's very uh, well deserved. Okay, <laughs> um, you, you know it, it's. I guess at, at that time everybody was just pushing the envelope a little further. Well, Okay, so if if my hair is six inches big, mm-hmm. what will happen if I make it eight inches big? <laughs> yeah, and and you know and and that was just sort of the 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 uh, you know the old saying nothing exceeds like excess. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it's true. I remember playing in a band at that point, and and one day we're playing. We were playing a college in Rhode Island, and I'm looking at like everyone we're having with us, you know, and kind of got our normal row crew and sound guys and all that. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, we have a hairdresser with us. Like, why the hell do I have
4: a hairdresser with us? I was, like, <laughs> I was like, this has got to stop. Well, the uh, and, you know, I think the other thing that really contributed a lot to it was MTV.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. video. So definitely. now not
4: only were you a rock star, but a lot of these guys thought they were movie stars as well. Yeah. And so that opened up a whole uh, another level of, you know, self-importance, self-indulgence and, um, you know, and beautification.
2: Yeah. Now did, did you, as these bands that you produced like Rat and Winger got bigger, um, did you have to be more of a people person? in the studio to deal with their egos as they got more popular because it did a lot of people were probably just saying yes to them about everything and you had to kind of, you know, we have to do this and we, you know, within so many days and do it this way and there's no other way we can do it. Were, 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 hard, were certain bands harder to, harder to manage than others?
4: Rat was generally speaking, very difficult. Okay. Um, and, and again, it, it was partially, partially deserved Um, because I was the first, I mean, Rat was the first major label project that I produced.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: And so they didn't want me to produce the record. And, uh, and so it was like, well, why do we need to listen to this guy? He sold exactly the same amount of zero records that we have so far. So why the hell are we (laughs) listening to him? Mm -hmm. And so that, especially on out of the solar, that was a particular, a particularly complicated challenge. Okay. But I, I was fortunate enough to have the absolute total 100% support of Doug Morris, who was the president of Atlantic Records at the time. And he made it abundantly clear to the band's manager, and then the band's manager, Marshall Burl filtered it on down, that if both says jump, the correct answer is how high, if you want to be on this label. Mm-hmm. And uh, so begrudgingly, that's kind of how it went. I take the fiduciary responsibility of a producer very, very, very seriously. Okay. And that has made a lot of the artists that I have worked with over the years quite pissed at me. <laughs> well, they, they don't understand it, probably. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, I guess, you know, they if, if uh, Nikki Six and Jakey are your best friends, and they're going out and flying to Paris with their girlfriends for lunch and, yeah. and show up at the studio with a brand-new Corvette, everybody's turning around to me and going, what the hell's wrong with you? Why can't we do that? Yeah. And my response to them was, listen, you guys, this gravy trade isn't going to last forever, so you can thank me later.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, now, w- while we're on the subject of Rashbow, um, huh? It's, there's been stories over the years that, especially Stephen Percy, is very difficult to get a performance out of in the studio. And th- they brought you back in, I believe, for Reach for the Sky, because they are having problems with, uh, with Mike Stone. What did, you, what, what did you do to get the performance out of him in the studio that others couldn't?
4: Well, um, what I did basically, I mean, early on, was on the very first record when Stephen was just kind of singing on his own, it was kind of just monosyllabic, you know, it was kind of like, it was almost like talking. Yeah. And because I was always the singer in the bands that I was, was in, you know, I was hearing different melodies. Yeah. So I would say, hey, Stephen, try this. And then I'd get on the talk back and I'd say, go, what goes around comes around, I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. I'd just sing it to him. Yeah. And then he started singing it back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the way we did it. Okay. And it it got to the point where after the first record, Steven would not go to, to pre-production rehearsal anymore, and, and which made the band quite annoyed. And they were like, "Look, man, you got to show up for rehearsals and do your parts." And he said, "Well, I don't know what my parts are until Bo sings them for me, <laughs> Well,
2: whatever so, works."
4: <laughs> but I, we we had we had a, a, a I would characterize it as a as a good, albeit very strange, working relationship. Yeah. Um, you know, and and Stephen was one of those guys that I I was, and I don't think I'm I'm speaking out of school now, but you know I was I wanted to be gentle with him because the whole idea was to make it seem like it was his idea. Okay. You know, and and if and if I'm singing in the talkback microphone at him and he goes, okay, I'll do that, then you know that sort of contradicts the whole concept a little bit, but the idea was was hey, Stephen, man, you know, you just gave me a great idea with that one line that you say. Hey, how about if you, why don't you go down a major third on that, on the word, you know, sofa?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> and he'd go, oh, okay, what's that sound like? And, I, and then I'd sing it for him, and he'd go, oh, yeah, okay, sure, I can do that. <laughs> and that's kind of how we did it. Yeah. And then the other thing with Stephen was also texturing. Like, once he, once he heard it, once he he really understood what was happening melodically and phrasing-wise and things like that, mm-hmm. he, could, he could duplicate it over and over and over and over again. Okay. And so routinely, I would use, you know, we would normally sing about five, five tracks. Okay. And then I would go through and I would comp together the very best of the best. And then I'd go through again and I whatever was left, and I'd comp together the second best and then the third best. Okay. And then depending on the song and if, if his voice was sounding kind of puny and thin or just kind of like a razor blade, then you know, I would add an additional track to kind of just beef it up a little bit. Okay. And his, his voice, because it's so rough, really responds well on tape. To that type of an approach. I mean, not not everybody does. Not everybody works the same way. But yeah. for him, it it re- really did work. Yeah. He definitely has a very unique
2: voice. You know, it's him, yeah. and it suits the band's music as well.
4: Yeah. I mean, it, whether you, whether he's a good singer or not, the thing that was so great about Stephen is that every time he opens his mouth, everybody knows who it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So who was the easiest guy in that band to work with? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> is that a, a next question? <laughs> yeah.
4: Sorry, Bo. <laughs> well, the, the thing with the guys from Rat is, is they were an they were in, in equal opportunity pain in the ass band. <laughs> so e- everybody had me in their crosshairs at some point in time for some reason. Usually the biggest problem was in selecting the material for the records. Yeah. Because I maintained complete and total control over that, which meant that I always had somebody really mad at me. These guys were fiercely competitive with each other, and I would get phone calls, you know, after work from one guy lobbying his song to me and tearing down the other guy's song. Yeah. And this happened with remarkable frequency. <laughs> For every record I ever did with those guys, I mean, I hadn't figured it out after a while. But my job was to make the best record for them and for me, you know, because we all had a vested interest in it. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I and I tried to spread the love around as much as I could. But not all writers are created equal, even though you might think you are.
2: Yeah. So when you went back in for Reach for the Sky. Did they like, Did they bite their tongue because they were back working with you, or, or did the old tensions come back again?
4: Well, here's, I, can, I can tell you the story as I got it. Okay. I got a call from Doug Morris, and he said, I need a favor. And I said, Abs- Doug, you know, I'll do whatever. You don't even have to ask. I'm, I'll just do it. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I want you to... to uh, his, his words were, I just listened to the, to the Rat Ruffs of the new record. And I went, wow, great. How's it, how's it doing? He said, quote, they sound like a bad Holiday Inn band. <laughs> and he said, I really need you to come in and fix this. And, you know, and I, I said, okay, um, let me send it over and let me listen to it. So he sent it over, and it was, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, trash Mike on this, but the, re- the record clearly was not proper. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know if it was Mike or if it was just the fact that he was he wasn't quite um, up to the task of dealing with the inner, inner politics of rat yeah. and how to navigate those very dangerous waters. <laughs> but uh, I went in and, and with Marshall, and, and I just did my negotiation with him,
3: and, yeah.
4: and they paid me quite, quite, quite handsomely. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I was a co-writer on the entire album yeah and so you know at that point i guess they had felt kind of embarrassed that the record company basically threw the record out and so i didn't have quite as much attitude as i normally would have and you know eh, we went out and had dinner and and uh you know we all kind of shook hands and said okay asshole let's do it again
2: You did the four of them. Do you have a favorite? Uh, Invasion. Oh, the second one, okay. Yeah, yeah that, I love that album as well. It's a great album.
4: Well, I like Invasion, and then I really like Way Cool
2: Jr. Oh, from, from Reacher of the Sky, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's a good tune as well. Absolutely. They still actually they still play that on the set, yeah, which is good.
1: Yeah, it's probably it's actually probably one of my favorite rat tunes. I just kind of love the kind of the interplay and the guitar line and stuff. It's it's see, it's a lot different than a lot of what they did, and and just at least some of that, you know, the intro lines and things like that. So it's, I, th- I think that's actually just one of those really cool
4: songs. For, for which one? For Way
1: Cool. Way Cool Jr.
4: Well, you know, Way Cool, the, one of the things that, that Warren D. Martini taught me very early in my career, and I am eternally grateful to him for this, is Warren is one of those idiot savant geniuses. I mean, like, completely off the chain, just like, what on earth did you just do? Oh, I don't know, dude. I was just fucking around. <laughs> so I learned very early on that any time I'm in the recording studio with Warren, with Warren something has to be recording. I didn't even care if it was a cassette player. Something's <laughs> got to be logging it. And the opening of Way Cool Jr., I heard it was just one of those weird deals. Yeah. Warren was he was warming up, mm-hmm. and I turned around to my uh, assistant engineer and I said, "Hit record." Wow! And you know we and we have reels and reels and reels of stuff that's just garbage, but I just did it. Okay. And that's where and that's where that riff came from. And then I I said, Warren, we, that's that's going to be our single, so let's finish this.
1: Okay. Yeah. And it's a great riff. It's yeah. It's one of those ones you when know, oh, I first heard it, I'm kind of like. What the hell is he playing? And you just, you, it's, it's one of these things that just sounds, it sounds so approachable. And yet, when you're really good on it to the, the part of trying to learn what it is he's doing, then it starts yeah. to screw with you.
4: And I love riffs like that. And, and Lay It Down happened similarly. These guys, um, I was still living in an illegal converted warehouse in lower Manhattan. And we'd finished out of the cellar. And they were touring at the Beacon Theater with Opening for Motley. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to spend some time with Warren. I said, listen, you got to bring me down all the, you know, because they're recording cassettes of little ideas on the bus and in their hotel rooms and stuff like that. And I go through all that stuff. And so he came down to my apartment, and he brought this, and I was listening to these tapes. And all of a sudden I heard, I went, that's great. What is that? He said, you know, same thing. Oh, it's just that little rip I was working on. I said, okay, we got to work on this. We have to develop this idea. And similarly, on a bunch of, a couple of the solos that Warren did, he was one of those guys that you really had to get it early because before he started overthinking it and started, uh, you know, uh, self-analyzing and all that stuff, when he just let it go, it was generally brilliant. And he taught me a very, Big lesson. It was, I don't remember what song it was on the first record. He did an absolutely mind blowing solo. I mean, the phrasing was just superb. It was just, I sat there and I was like almost in tears. And back in those days, we were restricted with the number of tracks that we had because it was all analog. Mm-hmm. And Warren was one of those guys that just because he got it in the first take, it couldn't be any good. And so I let him talk me into erasing that take and doing it again. He, oh, Bo, come on, man. I was just warmed up. I've got a much better one in me than that. <laughs> and so I fell for it. <laughs> and that was the one time that I know we, we burned a really great, I mean, like a career solo, oh, wow. like, um, you know, like Layla or, or one of, or Sunshine, Sunshine of Your Love, you know, one of those solos that any Tom, Dick, and Harry can sing yeah. because it's so great, but we burned one of those because I just, I didn't stick to my guns, and so after that, I, I always, if there was one that I thought was good, I'd start erasing drum tracks <laughs> <laughs> before I was going to erase his stuff.
2: All right. I think after Ratchet, you did the Winger album around the same time as Reach for the Sky, didn't you?
4: The first one. Um, I think it was about 88. eighty-eight. First Winger happened, yeah, probably.
2: Yeah. So how, how did you get to work with those guys?
4: Well, I I knew Kip from uh, Colorado. Okay. I knew Kip since he was sixteen years old, and so I got him their deal on Atlantic. Okay. And then um, I went on. I formed uh, Control Management, and mm-hmm. so I was the. The producer and the manager um although we hired a a very nice lady to run the office field the phone calls because i didn't want to be known as a manager but you know this was my baby and i put my my name on it put my balls on the line with 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 atlantic and i wasn't about to surrender it to somebody else we tried there was a um um, promotion company out in New York called concrete management. Mm -hmm. And I had used those guys on, you know, some of the other projects that I was working on, you know, from a promotion point of view. Anyway, we hired one of the principals to, uh, manage winger and that lasted about, about 30 days. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, and then at that point, I, I just had to take the bull by the horns, and I, I didn't really want to do management, yeah. but at that point, I was protecting my career, and I was protecting my friend, Kip, yeah. and, you know, somebody had to step in and, and take the bull by the horns, and so that was me. So I was producing all these groups, and then I was on the phone with the winger office, mm-hmm. with the gal we put in the office. You know, we did our debrief in the morning and our debrief in the afternoon, and then you know, we had our radio guys and stuff, so it was a it was a good team, and that was the only way I was able to do it.
2: Yeah. So, did that band come together like organically over time, or was it just like put together?
4: It was. <clears throat> it was put together, kind yeah, of, kind of.
2: Uh, <laughs>
4: Kip, and Kip was living in New York. Yeah. And um, and I was using Kip as a studio musician on everything I could. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was introduced to Reb separately. And I had Reb play on a couple of things, and then I, I introduced Kip and Reb together, and I just said, listen, you guys, this is this is a, a uh, partnership from heaven. Yeah. And they really, they hit it off. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I don't remember how we got Paul. Oh, Paul Taylor came in from, from Alice Cooper. Okay. So Kip went out and played with Alice Cooper, and Paul was playing with Alice at the same time, so that's how they met. Yeah. And then Kip said, listen, I want to bring Paul in. So okay. And then... Um, one of our friends at MTV had a personal relationship with with Rod, and um, he kept he he kept saying, "You have really got to get Rod." And I was like, "Look, number one, you know, Rod's a professional. He's a lot older than these guys, and I I just I just I just don't think that this is going to be a good fit." So anyway, I had a meeting with with Rod, yeah. and I tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I said, "Rod, listen, this is going to be." Um, a minimum wage gig, at least for the foreseeable future. And, uh, you know, and this there's nothing luxurious about it, you know, because Rod was famous from the Dixie Drake. Yeah. And, and I felt kind of weird saying that to him. But I said, look, I just got to be honest with you. We don't have the money to pay you what you're used to. And we don't have the, you know, it's not going to be first class plane tickets. It's going to be, you know, Vans, and then maybe if we, if we get successful, maybe a bus. And I'm going to run the business the way that I want to run it, which is not the way that most people do.
3: Yeah.
4: So what we did was we put everybody on a minimal salary, and I had everybody move out of their apartments uh, because I knew that they were they were going on the road for a year. So I said we're going to store all your junk in storage, move out of apartments. We're going to pay everybody a minimal, like barely even feed yourself salary. And then we're going to bonus everybody at the end of the year. Yeah. Because if, if something goes wrong and I've got to dip into the band account to uh, do promotions on our next record or to do a video or to do whatever, I want to have the funds to do it. Yeah. I don't want to always have to be going back to the label with my hat in my hands begging them to try to help us. Yeah, yeah. And again, that was another very unpleasant unpopular thing, but I really insisted on it. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I thought that was going to kill the deal with Rod right there. Yeah. But he said, no, I really love this music. And I think this is really great and I'd love to do it. And I said, okay. Okay. <laughs> We'd love to have you. I mean, you're, you're yeah.
2: brilliant. Now to to me, um, if anyone was to say, name an eighties band that I thought was unfairly maligned with the hair metal tag, it to me, it'd be winger because I thought that they were, they were super talented musicians. They, the songs were great. You know, they were great band live. Um, I know they had. They ended up with the image as well, but to me, they were so much more than
4: that. Well, the th- there were two things that really killed Winger from my. Actually, there were three. Thing number one was when Lars put a dart in yeah. his forehead on a video.
3: Yeah.
4: <laughs> the second one was the Beavis and Butthead thing. Mm-hmm. And the third one was when Kit posed for Playgirl. Yeah. Which I told him not to do. Yeah. Said, this is not rock. <laughs> and so, you know, those were all kind of self inflicted wounds. Well, not all of them were self inflicted, but um you know, Kip to this to this day, I mean, he's a he's a good looking guy and he is probably, you know, from a musical point of view, one of the most, if not the most talented person I have ever met. Yeah. I mean um, you know his his abilities are are extraordinary. I mean, not just being a rock and roll bass player, but just his overall musical uh, education and uh, background is truly remarkable. Yeah. And so, but you know his his uh, I guess his business acumen <laughs> 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 leaves something to be desired.
2: Yeah. But, yeah.
1: That he went to, I think
4: he went to some pretty prestigious school, didn't he, for for music? No, what he did was he he uh, tutored under a professor from uh, uh Boston School of Music. Okay. Oh no, you know what? It may have been he may have been a professor at Juilliard.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's uh, I remember that he was that was one of the standout things was he actually had this this kind of this background and stuff that was far beyond what a lot of the other the people in the industry had. So it was.
4: What well, and Rod. Yeah, you know, I, I believe that Rod is, is actually a percussion professor at the New England School of Music.
1: In Berkeley, he is. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, I mean, all those Dregs guys were all, you know, way out there with with what they knew how to do. Yeah, incredible band. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you know about that?
2: Um, the Winger they're they're performing a show, I think, in the next month or two. They're doing their first album in its entirety. 25 year anniversary I did not know that yeah so I think they're performing somewhere in New Mexico they're home to maybe do some more shows that'll be fun yeah and they're still I saw them last December I went to see them twice in three days up here and Kip Kip has lost nothing in his singing voice he's still a fantastic singer yep in my opinion and um, so the other band of course I want to talk about is um Warrant um we're probably about 88 as well uh um, how did you get to produce those guys? Because they were on um, it was a CBS, I think they were on. They weren't on Atlantic. Right. So how did you get that uh, that job?
4: They were managed by Tom Hewlett's company at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but the man, the, the day-to-day guy, was a guy named Eddie Wenrick. Okay. And and Eddie and I kind of brushed paths in Colorado, up at Jimmy Garcia's studio. He used to have a really beautiful place called Caribou Ranch, and I think that we may have met there once, but. He, uh, but Eddie sent, sought me out and said, "Hey, will you come and check this group out?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Okay," and I went to see them. They were playing at some really big club in uh, in the valley out in L.A. and I, and the place was packed. I mean, there was like two or three thousand kids in there,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and um, and I was looking around the room and I'm and I'm watching, you know a thousand kids sing the words to heaven. That's all it took for me. I said, yes, I'll do it. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, and Jamie was a cross between an acrobat and a Baptist preacher and just, you know, the energizer buddy. I mean, he was so great <laughs> just as an overall entertainer. Yeah. Um, I just thought I, I watched him work the crowd and I, I thought, wow, they're a, this was going to work. Now, that was back in the days when they were wearing coordinated uniforms and, yes. and, and it was, you know, part of it was a little silly, but, yeah, um, you know, I figured, okay, that's, that's the least of the problems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So when, when you look back on some of their songs like Cherry Pie now, what, what, what do you, what, what's your thoughts on, on that song now in particular? Because like they've been really, really typecast with that particular song.
4: You know, I, I guess I'm probably a, a, a standalone on this. I say, you know, it's a rock anthem. Yeah. you, know, if you guys want to uh, uh, typecast me with that, I'll take it all day long.
2: Yeah, because even, even for a time, I think Janie said that he wouldn't play that song live, that he was sick of it.
4: Yeah, I, um, it's very funny. I spoke to Janie four days before he died. And I hadn't spoken to him in like, uh, in, in several years. Yeah. And and he called me and we had the nicest chat. I mean, it was just like I saw the guy yesterday. Yeah. And I asked him about that. I, I said, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? I mean, why, <laughs> why are you being so um, weird about cherry pie? I mean, it's an anthem, it's a hit. Everybody knows it.
3: Mm-hmm
4: what's wrong with you? And he said, well, you know, I kind of rethought it and now, I, I, you know, I'm okay with it and I, I, don't, know, I don't know what his problem was. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, uh, if you're going to be in, in a band, the, the moniker that you want is, yes, I had at least one hit song, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, some, that's something to be proud of and hang your hat on because not everybody can do it. Yeah. So, so no, I, I proudly say yes i was lucky enough to be involved with that song mm-hmm.
2: and you, you did the um you did the ultraphobic album that they did in 95 as well bo i did um what, what,
4: what was
2: that a deliberate ploy by by Janie and the band to update their sound or, did, or was did it just happen over the space of like five years between dog eat dog and that one because it definitely sure. sounds different in a lot a lot of it to to some of the earlier stuff
4: very much so yeah well there were there were a couple of different elements one was the guitar player rick steyer
2: yeah from kingdom the rock and, and yeah.
4: then james kotak mm-hmm. and you know and and they and we we went very purposefully you know trying to bridge the gap futilely as it was from the warrant perception um and tried to sort of uh, do a Vulcan mind meld between the perception of Warrant and all the grunge stuff that was going on up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was basically a hail mary to try to resuscitate their careers.
2: Yeah, it's actually I think it's a very good album. Um, it I, did,
4: I love the record. I yeah. think it's really great. Yeah, but trying to undo, you know, the the perception of of Warrant in the middle of the grunge era was a pretty daunting task. Yeah. And I think we fell a little short of that.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember one of our other co-hosts, Jay, one of his favorite stories was uh, he lives up up uh, in New Hampshire and he was driving home one night from something and he just happened to see outside of uh, like a pool hall and it said warrant and he was thinking, oh, it can't be like the warrant so he went inside and sure enough he was like yeah it was warrant they were playing like this pool hall in like middle of nowhere in New Hampshire but it was around that same time frame and he's like yeah the songs were the songs were fantastic it's just yeah he says I couldn't believe I was you know this band that you couldn't get a ticket for a few years back from there was playing some pool hall in New Hampshire totally blew him away but <laughs> but hearing the tunes that they were doing he you know he went out and he he loves that album. Yeah, yeah. oh how the mighty have fallen
4: <laughs>
2: Involved in the early '90s as well, Bo, with Interscope Records. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, what 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 made you get involved with that?
4: Well, I was one of the co-founders. It morphed from um, Doug Morris approached uh, myself and Jimmy Iovine to do a, a label for Atlantic, mm-hmm. and he said, "Yeah, let's do this. You guys will have your own label, and we'll put up the money. We'll put up 20 million. Yeah and I went wow 20 million that sounds that sounds pretty good and then about a month later i get a call from jimmy and he said listen i went to a fundraiser uh, that sting played at and some other people and i met this guy named ted fields um, and he's starting his own label and he's putting up his own money 200 million he said i'm going with ted what do you want to do <laughs> and back, that's, back that's to winner. <laughs> And that's how it started. Yeah. And then we were trying to figure out who we were going to do our distribution deal with. And I went w- with um, with Jimmy and Ted, and I said, "Look, you know, the only distribution that I'm comfortable with is is Wea because of my long history with Atlantic. Yeah. And I knew everybody in the distribution network, and I could get things done. Yeah. So we brought Atlantic in as a uh, uh, as a partner and. And then shortly after that, the, you know, the concept of Interscope on paper was a dream come true. But then when we kind of, when Interscope began morphing into the gangster rap capital of the universe, mm-hmm. that was, uh, that was just, I, I wanted nothing to do with that. <laughs> So, you know, we're going up in the elevator, and it always smells like gun oil. And I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, homie, homie doesn't dig this, so yeah, I'm out of here. No,
2: the, the one album you did, and I'm nearly sure it's on Interscope. Is the Unruly Child album, the debut, is that on Interscope Records? It was. Yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, an, an absolute gem of a hard rock melodic album. I think it was just a couple of years
4: too late, though. Yeah, it was... I I, abs- I loved that record and yeah. that was one of, that was my either my first or second signing at Interscope. And love everybody in the band, just the super nice, great, talented guys. Yeah. And it was just not to be.
1: Yeah, which yeah. is a pity. Yeah, it's funny you know, talking about the rap because yeah, about that same time period and I, I told Mike Frazier the story like a couple weeks ago too is at that time period I ended up uh, I was doing a lot of mixing for bands and there was a, a local rap artist and they, he's like, yeah, can you try remixing this for me? And so I'm like, I'm not a rap guy and I'm just like, alright, I think I know what he wants and I went in and I did a remix and the next thing you know, he, he like, he's loving it. He's telling the next person, the next person. Next thing you know, I'm doing like rap album after rap album with mixes. And ah. of course, the lyrics on, I'm like, I have to do everything on cans because I can't let my kids hear the lyrics. <laughs> so I'm doing, <laughs> exactly. no, I can't use any reference It's Everything's on cans. And I think after about six months of it, I was like, I can't do it anymore. I cannot like mix another rap album. I'm like, I'm, I'm so done with this. But yeah, yeah, that whole time period, it was like this massive
4: overflow of it. It was incredible. Well, you honestly did something right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lucky
1: me. It was. <laughs> yeah, I, it was, I guess you call it dumb luck. Is what it was. I think with some of it too, it got to a point where you could just, you know, I would, I would bring up almost the same mix. Like, all right, it's, well, it's like a recipe. I'm, you know, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and it's like almost a guarantee that they're going to like it because you just put this. These kind of these elements in there, and and right. they just would latch onto them, and it was kind of it, part of the part of the whole thing too. Was that after a while, it got to not be a challenge anymore because it was pretty much. I got to be just throw that same recipe at the next song, and it was almost yeah. like I could just program a scene and just go mix that and do it. Yeah. So. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's true, and, and it's, and it, it, it sounds like like you're a creative guy, and there's only a, a point where you can make the same record over and over and over again, and still be you know creatively satiated and want to do it.
1: Exactly, yeah, and 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 too, you know, the thing like where you bring into songwriting, where you go, oh, you know, what if you do this or what if you do that? Where you know you're dealing with rap and you're dealing with like mostly a lot of samples and and loops and things like that. There's not a lot of well, how about if you try this chord? Or you go this way, or you change this key. You don't, you just don't have any of that. It's it's right. you know it's. Not that's as fun. fun. Yep. Definitely. A <laughs> Yeah. So,
2: Bo, did you guys have, um, like all the producers of the time, did you all, like, have a fraternity with each other where you'd talk to each other a lot and, you know, contact each other? Or did you just, like, you know, put yourselves in rooms and, like, hide yourself away from, from the outside world for months on end?
4: Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And the answer is, no, we didn't communicate. And it's really a shame. Yeah. Um, but... Again, everything was so highly competitive, and we were all fighting for the same projects.
2: Yeah, because the, the, the next question I was going to have was, um, did you know Mike Shipley at all, who recently passed away?
4: Mike Shipley passed away? Yeah, last
2: week. Yeah,
4: you're kidding? No,
2: that's that's why I said I'd ask. Did you did you know? Did you, all you guys communicate with each other a lot? Yeah, he passed I, away.
4: I didn't. I did not know.
2: Yeah, last week. Wow. Yeah, just wonder, Did you know him at all?
4: Um, I did. I didn't know him well. Yeah. Um, oh man, that's that's very very sad. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what, do you know what the cause of death was?
2: I don't know. I just knew that he that he passed, and a lot of the bands that worked with him, uh, Def Leppard, and I think Winger worked with him, on the Pull album, have uh, all posted up messages saying how sad it is. You know that I don't think he was that old either. I think he was probably in his fifties.
4: No, but I had heard that he. Um Quite some time ago, that he was having some pretty severe health issues. Yeah, but I did not know. Well, thank thank you so much for telling me.
1: Okay, no problem, Bo.
4: I'll have to um, I'll have to see if there's a some sort of a fund or something like that that they set up for you. Yeah.
1: yeah, you know, if we hear of uh, something um, for it, we'll shoot you an email to let you know. Yes, thank you. I'd appreciate yeah, that. No I'll problem. Appreciate that. So um, now that we've kind of got a bunch of people kind of revved up on Bo Hill and people that maybe didn't know some of what you did in the past and stuff, because of course our our listeners run the gamut from you know, older people or to, you know, newer, you know, younger kids that were just getting into it and stuff. Like, where's the best place for them to kind of go find out about what you're doing and stuff like that? Do you
4: have a, like a main website or a Facebook yeah, or go to com.
2: Awesome. Excellent.
4: And we, we update it like every, you know, whenever I, I finish a project, you know, I do little snippets of it. So we've got, uh, uh, music from every old record that I was able to remember that I did
3: mm-hmm.
4: and um, and then all the new indie stuff that I'm doing from bands around the world. And, okay. and it's and we keep it updated, so it's there's always something new.
2: yeah well, you, you still seem to be getting a kick out of it as much as you used to, which is which is great to see. Wait, I'm sorry, I could barely hear you. No, you still seem to be getting a, as big a kick out of it as you used to, which is which is great to hear.
4: Oh, you know, I'm one one of the lucky guys that I was in the record business when it was still a real business. Yeah. And I suppose I don't really need to do this anymore if I don't want to, but I couldn't imagine not doing it. Yeah. Because it's my passion. I get up every morning and I'm excited to get started and see what I can come up
1: with. Right. Yeah, I definitely, I I hear that. I, I listen to music. It's like I start start going into that whole thing about how do they do it and you know all that so yeah it, it's almost like a it's almost like a sickness but a but a good sickness
4: well and because of the internet I've, i i had been able to work with some really really talented people mm-hmm. that you know under the under before i posted my website you know they had to go through my lawyer or a manager or something like that and i mean i was missing out on so much yeah so now people you know, I get bands. So they just send me files. I've never met them. I don't know anything about them. They just send me stuff. It's like, can you please help us?
2: Yeah. yeah. So final, yeah. final, yeah, final question from me, Bo. Do you have a favorite album from the '80s that you worked on? That I worked on? Yeah, favorite album of all the artists you worked on. Yes. Um, Europe. Prisoners in Paradise. Yep. Wow. That's a wow. <laughs> good pick. I actually forgot you
1: did that. <laughs> <laughs> He just he just blew Richie away. Yeah. He's he's one of these guys that's a big Europe fan. You know,
2: I, yeah, I I think their new stuff is fantastic as well. Well
4: Joey and I became became best friends. Yeah. And uh, he was best man at my previous wedding. Okay. And and although the record started out very weird. Yeah. Um their manager, Herbie Herberts flew me to san francisco to go to to go to a rehearsal yeah i went to rehearsal i listened to it and i listened to the material that was going to go on this new record and i thought wow this is really great and, and when i'm leaving the room joey comes up and, and says thanks for coming up but but uh, there's no way we're working with you on this record <laughs> and i was like it was like he just put a cream pie in my face and i <laughs> thought well what is, why did i come up here he said well um no we we want to do the record with Bob Rock. Okay. But we don't want to do it with you. And I said, "Well, you know what? Bob's great and I I um you know, um I'm glad that it, if I didn't get the record, I'm glad I lost it to him. And if anything changes, please let me know. Best of luck, blah 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 blah." Yeah. And so I walked out just going, "What in the hell was that all about?" <laughs> and about a month later, I got a call and uh, Herbie said, "Would you do it?" And I, I went, "Yeah, absolutely." Yeah. And then you know we we recapped our original meeting. Everybody had a good laugh at my expense, and it was it was okay. <laughs> and then I went with those guys because Prisoners in Paradise was about the house that the band had in Turks and Caicos. Okay. Because they were on, they were all tax exiles from Sweden. Yeah, and so when we finished the record, we went down to Turks and Caicos and and hung out for uh, I don't know a month at their uh, Prisoners in Paradise house. Nice. So that's that's where that whole thing came from.
1: All right, excellent, cool, excellent. See, yeah. I knew you I knew you'd be good for some for some great stories. So it's, yeah, it's definitely it's been a blast having you on tonight, Bob.
4: Bob, Bob. See, so you're talking about <laughs> Bob Rock. I go into Bob Bob Mo.
1: <laughs> Would you mind ever coming back on again? Would that be something cool to do? Sure.
4: I awesome. mean, if I can if I can answer any questions that makes any sense, of course. Great, great, yes. great, you know, we... You know, a lot of a lot
1: of shows like to concentrate on artists, but we always like to talk to a lot of the other people too. There that were really involved, because usually they usually have a lot of the best stories, and usually right. they're also the ones that remember them. So
2: it's,
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's always good for our show. You, yeah. you just caught me
4: on a good day.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's it's been a blast talking to you, Bo. Certainly been an honor for me. Uh, yeah, for me too. I uh, I oh, like, guys it's- my I, pleasure. Yeah, I grew
2: up on your stuff, Bo. Well,
1: th- thank you very much. We'll let you get back to your power mixing and uh, be looking forward to seeing uh, whatever product comes out of this. Mm-hmm. Awesome. awesome. All right, Bo. So Bo. Thank have a you. Rest okay, of okay. the night, Bo. Have a good All evening. Right. You too. Later. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that talk with Bo. I mean, Richie and I definitely did. And we're hoping to have him back on. Again. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully, if some of those answers made people go, "Really? Wow!" Like, didn't realize that. Like,
2: yeah. Well, we have, <laughs> we have another producer we've talked to for something right. else. So you know, we we, we are trying to go down that path a little bit yeah yeah um <laughs> you have your wish list like you know I, i'd love to speak to dieter dirks yeah about accepting the scorpions and all these bands or mm. like martin birch you, you just yeah. you just love to pick these guys brains yeah because they all have different ways of recording the stuff and they mm-hmm. sure did have they're the guys that were in the studio all yeah. the time yeah they, they weren't the drummer went in out in three days cut his tracks and pissed off right at the pub for six weeks um so they're the guys that actually you know Crack the whip made or an integral part of the yeah of all these classic albums.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. and it's good. To, it's good to to bring that out and and you know even though this was definitely got had a, a a heavy kind of 80s slant. I mean, you kind of basically set it up front in the interview too. I mean, this was you know the the bands that really got you into the music. Yeah, well, that's and you that's grew up me. With it yeah, and, and so it you know it's yeah, I think it was it was good, and I think he gave a really cool perspective. So yeah, I think it was a lot of fun
2: yeah i gotta I got say
1: that um some of the things you said about rat were <laughs> <so> yeah funny <laughs> definitely so all right so i mean that'll do it for this week um you know of course you can keep up with what's going on up on focus on i did um did turn on a new page on there i'm gonna it's kind of in its infancy, but basically uh putting out uh tour information and uh you know we get provided uh kind of tour posters from a lot of the labels so starting to put them up there so you guys can see uh you know what bands are on tour what the bills are what the dates are all that stuff so that's up on our tour page now only have a couple up there so far but uh you know that'll grow as it goes and whatever else we might throw up on that page as well that's why i'm calling it tours etc up until now for the last two years it's just kind of been a blank page so finally uh got that one going so that's good and obviously uh you know thanks to uh to to uh, Dan from um, Mahogany Head Grenade for letting me know about some of the links that weren't working up there, so fixed all that as well. And uh, as I had said on the uh, little piece I put up last week or two weeks ago, all the uh, all the 2012 shows are now available on iTunes, so that's good. And I'll work on getting the 2011 ones up there as well as getting the links on the website for the rest of the 2012 shows too. I think I got from April back to January to finish up the 2012. Yeah, so I was just all of that. To, I was just saying to Scott earlier on, I'm nearly on the show a year. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> so it's uh, so you know just we're working through it, trying to do all that, and of course, uh, thanks to uh, to Chris Sinzak from the uh, the Decibel Geek podcast. He did a uh, new uh, piece of Facebook artwork for us, a cover page. So yeah, thanks, it looks Chris. Cool. Appreciate that. And, uh, obviously decibel geek is uh, a great show. If you guys haven't ca- caught that one, definitely catch that one. And, uh, you know, if you like, you know, the hard rock and the metal, then, uh, there's definitely going to be some great stuff on there. They just did a great two part retrospective on 1985 that I totally got into. So a good show. So, you know, besides all the great shows on the cast iron ring, which I urge you guys to, to listen to every last one of those. Uh, one of the ones not of the ring is, uh, is the decibel geek. So definitely, uh, check that out and um you know also if you haven't kept catching up with our buddies at the thrash metal times definitely check out thrash metal times as well and always some cool stuff there as well so I think that's about it like I said keep up with us on focusonmetal.net and also on the blog spot focusonmetal.blogspot.com and uh, from there you can also hook up with us on Twitter and on Facebook as well and you know always the, the blogs going really well news couple of news stories about every day I put up there so that's up there Richie puts his reviews and his commentaries up there a lot of stuff so uh, that'll do it for this week so for myself Scott Thompson and Richie Have yourselves a good metal week, and remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant.
3: Dear, it's over. Go home.